Well, um, thank you everybody for coming, and especially thank you, Michael, for for coming and allowing indefatigable me indefatigable worker. <laughs> That's all I'm going to be known as. Um, especially. Thanks for allowing me to do two things with you. The, the film, firstly, that we... This is it. <laughs> no more. <laughs> Which um, we did a couple of years ago and was on the ABC in 2010. And that led me to believe that I could write a book, which is quite amazing. Um, and that was actually a fantastic thing. I really enjoyed it. It was a wonderful process. And strangely enough, I found it a free, sort of a freeing up thing from, from making films because when you make films, you rely on a lot of other people. And so you might decide you want something to be just like this or just like that, but it doesn't necessarily happen. When you're writing a book, you're just by yourself in a room with a word processor and it is all yours. So it might be horrible, but you take full responsibility for it. and. Uh, it's slightly different to making a film. So it, it has been a fantastic process and I just have to thank you for that because well, you were well, very generous. Seeing as we're all being very uh, mutually admiring, I think you've written it very well. I mean, it's a... It's, <laughs> thank you. It's, I wouldn't recommend this product if I didn't believe in it. <laughs> but um, for a person whose life has been visual, I think that's been an advantage in that the book is a sort of series of pictures mm. uh, expressed in language, um, which uh, isn't everybody's style. A and some might say, well, there should be more analysis, more cases and so on. But it's, it does, it's very easy to read. And uh, I, I think that's an achievement that you've made. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that was a sort of guiding principle, if you like. Um, I didn't actually have the idea to write the book. Bob Sessions, who's, who was the chief of Penguin Books, came to me when the film screened and said, surely there's a book here. And I think they actually wanted Michael to write his memoirs or an autobiography. But you said to me, no, you're too busy for that. And no, but uh, it's still, still going. I mean, the story's still <laughs> unfolding. That's right. The best parts are yet to come. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, you know, there's always volume two. We can move on to it. But, um, no, so Bob Sessions said, look, I want Michael to be foregrounded. I want him to have his voice there very strongly. And um, that was a sort of easy thing for me to do in a way because as a documentary filmmaker, um, I'm recording people speaking, talking heads, and then putting them into a, a film. And so I sort of just followed that process in the writing of the book and gave, you know, Michael has prominence, his friends, his family have prominence in their words. And I tried to do that, but I also tried to make it, um, as you say, a sort of visual thing. So I tried to describe things, um, give it the sense of immediacy that you do get from a film, whether it's a documentary film or another sort of film. So hopefully that, that worked. But, and um, there's criticism in there. Uh, and that, of course, is what media picks up on. They love, they they love criticism. And yeah. um, some of it I didn't entirely agree with, and I hope that we're going to have a chance uh, to say that. <laughs> yeah. You paint me as a person who was uh, lusting after the position of Chief Justice, whereas I don't think that was ever a big, big deal in my, my thinking. Yeah. And, uh, um, so, um, well, but we anyway, can, that's we can your prerogative. That. I would never interfere with your ex expressing <laughs> your views, but I, I've got a right to have my views back. 
You do, you do. And um, look, maybe look, I'd, I'd love to move on to talk about that in the Chief Justiceship and also the criticisms that are there in the book um, that you can respond to. But um, firstly, the book's called Law, Love and Life, and love was a big theme in the book. And I thought that was really important. It was something that I felt came out of the film as well. And you're one of the few people in public life who is prepared to talk about that. You don't, you just don't see that. You don't see prime ministers, you don't see high court judges talking about love and saying this is an important issue. And there's a quote on the back of the book which, um, where you talk about that. And I'm just wondering if you can tell us why you think that is. Why are people reticent to do that and why are you happy to do it? Or see it that it's important. Well, first of all, uh, I've got to let you know that um, I've said uh, when I've been spruiking the book at audiences that actually it should be a different order. It should be life first, because without life there's nothing, yeah. uh, and then uh, love, which is the m most important thing in a human life, and then law, which is a very, very interesting and very important. Uh, activity and occupation, but so I would have I would have reversed it actually, and and I think when you when you do uh, the reprint, you should think consider. <laughs> I don't wish to interfere in no, this. No, no, of course. Yeah. But it maybe it should be life, love, law. Anyway, it's just a All little right. humble suggestion. <laughs> taken, um, taken as to why people are reticent. Well. You know, some people would think, oh, what's he raving on about love all the time? And, uh, and that's a private thing. My father really thought that. He thought, mm. you know, you shouldn't uh, go on about that. That's a private sort of a thing. So uh, don't forget we're an Anglo-Celtic society and privacy and internal private values are, are still rather important mm. and privacy is still rather important to our value system. So I think that's the reason. Mm. But do you think it's important that we should move away from that or start to think about it a bit more broadly? Well, obviously, I've referred to it because it is a puzzle. I mean, uh, your book tells of how I saw Eleanor Roosevelt go past at um, the corner of uh, Parramatta Road and Concord Road when I was a boy and how her Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which was given to us in school, uh, when I was at, at school at, uh, soon after 1948, when it was adopted. <clears throat> and it is a puzzle. Uh, OK, we've got these things, but where, do they, where are these values and where do these rights come from? Um, what is the, the, the fundamental reason why we say we have basic rights? Uh, and um, without that, then it would be questionable. Are these just something that changes over time? Mm. So that's the puzzle I had. And, and thinking about it, it seemed to me the reason we have fundamental rights and we respect other people is we know enough about their lives, even if we don't know them at all, to know that they go through the same life experiences, basically, as we all do, mm. of uh, being born, of growing up, of, if you're lucky, having uh, loving parents and siblings and uh, then in society and, uh, and then going to school and et cetera, et cetera, and that uh, all of this is, is um, sort of uh, brought together by the fact that we love one another, uh, which is what all the great religions teach. So um, I'm not sure that 
people don't talk about it, but certainly uh, politicians may not talk about it because they're embarrassed to talk about it. Mm. But I'm mm. not embarrassed. I'm beyond embarrassment now. <laughs> <laughs> when I wrote that chapter that's really about your young life when you're in primary school and so on, and it begins with Eleanor Roosevelt um, coming to Sydney uh, and in her motorcade going down Parramatta Road and so on, I found this wonderful quote from her where she talked about human rights beginning in all the homes and the factories and just with ordinary people, and that has to begin there. Now, she didn't have, you know, Google Earth and she couldn't zoom in on a, a house, but that's what she talked about. She talked about there's the maps that just show the cities and the towns and so on, but then the real things are happening in people's homes. And, yes. and that's why she expects... She was a marvellous person, really, and so advance of her time, and in advance, at least, of the public display of her husband, mm. uh, who was a remarkable person too, but, uh, but he was a politician. Um, there's a wonderful story of her turning up at a speech in, in uh, the South, and all the white fellas were on one side of the hall and all the blacks on the other, mm. and she went and sat on the black side. Uh, and that was just the sort of person... She was a patrician sort of a person. Some of her early letters, which I've read recently, suggested that she grew up with patrician attitudes in New York, including some element of anti-Semitism, which she was later, of course, uh, to totally re reject. But she was a remarkable human mm. being and mm. a very great person and woman. Mm. And um, certainly her work as chair of the committee that drafted the Universal Declaration was instrumental, especially on getting the Americans on side, because they had rejected many of the notions of the League of Nations, but they had been there at the birth of um, the United Nations, and this was the Bill of Rights of the United Nations of the world, mm. and it's still a greatly influential document. And she she actually did a similar thing in Australia because after being in Sydney, she went to Brisbane where she visited all the black American troops who had their... Because um, they think, fought separately, yes, I think. exactly, at, yeah, yeah. yeah. And she made a special point War. of going there and yes. visiting them. I mean, you, that's so, what you've got to have in life, really. You've got to have foresight. You've got to be able to look into the future and see the things that uh, people don't see at the moment mm. uh, and, um, and to see the future. And uh, I don't want to go into personality uh, approaches, which is very American, and she was just one of the members of the committee. And our own Australian, Dr H.V. Everett, was the president of the General Assembly at the mm. time, and he encouraged the process of developing this universal uh, statement of rights. But uh, she was a, a truly remarkable human being and, um, and she made a difference in the world. And that's mm. what we've all got to try to do in our different ways. She, she really uh, made a difference. Mm. In those early years when you were a young boy, I, I met your father and he was a lovely man. I'm, I met him several times and interviewed him for the book. But I never met your mother um, and I had to just piece together what she might have been like from, from what people said. What, what sort of a person was, was your mother? Well, we were very blessed with both of our parents and as is often the case in relationships, they were complementary. Uh, my father was uh, quite um, 
sort of analytical and he had a very clear view of what it was to be a father. Uh, he had really been rejected by his father as a small boy and as you describe in the book that led to a sort of a view that he had of his father whom I never met. I never met my grandfather. Mm. Uh, my paternal grandfather. Mm. Uh, but did, did, it, did he it, ban you? I'm sorry? Did your father say you must never have contact with... Well, he never had contact. He didn't have to say you must never have contact. Yeah. He never had contact and I respected him. Mm. Since uh, his father's death, we have made contact with the, uh, his the grandfather's daughters by a second marriage and we are now a very close family. So that has been, that bridge has been mm. crossed. And I've sometimes wondered if that was a fault on my part that I never made a contact with uh, him, but I was too respectful and dutiful in my relationship to my father. And my father was not to be messed with right to the very end, <laughs> right to last November when he died. He didn't want to die. He had all of his capacities. He was spot on at all times and he was but he had a very strong conception of mm. what it was to be a father and that involved no self-pity uh, no mucking up uh, you had to sort of fit into a conception he had of the, what, what it was to be a child but um, <laughs> my my mother was di was different she both of them were highly intelligent my mother was very intuitive and very, uh, she had great comprehension. She could see the big picture. My father, like a lot of lawyers I've known, could often see the rules and your book brings that out in their respective reactions to the discovery of my sexuality. Mm. That my father was anxious, worried, he knew the rules, he knew, especially at those times, how damaging and dangerous this could be for me uh, and to spoil my capacities. My mother saw it through a heart and mm. she saw it in the bigger picture and um, between them we got this analysis and authority, uh, love, intuition and comprehension and uh, genetics is a wonderful thing and, and we were very lucky in in our parents and then lucky in our siblings and lucky in our relationships mm. and um, so I'm, I'm a pretty lucky chap. <laughs> you, you said that um, your mother saw it through the heart but did, did you ever talk to her about your sexuality? Did you ever broach well, that topic with her when you were Well at the person? very end, at the, when, when she was dying uh, in August uh, 1998 uh, I felt that it wouldn't be honourable not to have broached it verbally. Up till that time I hadn't really broached it verbally. I know now from your book that she had seen mm. uh, a, a letter which my, I'd written to my father in response to one from him. That, by the way, I think is, is the wonderful value added of your book from any other analysis of the past that you um, got your whole your hands on and grabbed and used the the documents the, the letters and so on that were in my father's private collection possession at the time uh, of his death and so 
that is something that hasn't been available before, including available in a sense to me. I mean, mm. I, I wrote some of these letters and I read his letters, but um, I hadn't seen them for decades. Mm. And uh, so this is really a very powerful did, did, how section. How did you feel in, when, you, when, you saw, when you saw them pieced together like that and you saw the correspondence? What did you think? Did you remember it that way? Was oh, it? yes, I remembered very clearly um, sexuality, homosexuality, he was a ginnet. Mm. Uh, and partly, I would think mostly, because he, he lived in the world and he'd known gay people at work and so on, he'd, he knew he was a ginnet because he knew at that time it was a source of whispering, gossip, denigration, stigma, humiliation, and sometimes uh, undermining and destruction. And he didn't want that to happen to his son. Uh, so a actually the, the letters are a sort of um, a glimpse mm. of, the, of the times. But I can certainly remember those times and I don't, I'm not critical of my father in any way because he was a loving father who naturally was very concerned but his message to me to uh, give it up and live a totally lonely, celibate life, um, effectively throw Johan out and uh, be on my own, it was just unreal and it wasn't going to happen. But with my mother, um, I'd never sort of verbalised it. Um, and that's often the way with people, even today. And But at the end, I thought, I'm, I cannot allow my mother to go into that dark, long night without speaking to her about it. And so I sat by her bed at our family home in Concord and I said, Mum, there's something I feel I should say. And so I then started to tell her and she then looked at me uh, and she had beautiful eyes, lovely green, green blue eyes, and she said, uh, what, what do you take me for? You've been bringing Johan <laughs> here for, for 30, 35 years or whatever it was. Uh, what are you telling me this for? <clears throat> I didn't come down in the last shower. <laughs> so, you know, mothers and fathers, if you're lucky, most mothers and fathers are, love their children and only want the best for their children and feel the pain for their children uh, my father was nervous and anxious. My mother knew how important love uh, and a full human life was to everybody. And um, both of them were very, very uh, wonderful people who in their different ways sort of helped me to reach my values, as usually happens. You, you, uh, you have to be very lucky with your parents and I I won the jackpot, I think. Mm. I think David, your brother, describes your mother as having a searchlight-like intelligence and she'd look at you and peer into you and know. Um, is that the way you remember her? Yes, uh, and uh, also she was, I think, a bit more realistic in her assessment of, of others. Um, Maybe this came from the intuition. She she had a very good judge judgment of character and of people's sort of inner self. Mm. And um, 
Whereas my father and I would often be uh, rather trusting, um, she, she would sometimes sort of sum up people and have a, a slightly more sceptical view about them. And um, uh, so, yes, she did have a searchlight and she had lovely eyes by which she saw the world and uh, uh, shone her light on her children. She mm. was very proud of her children, but not to the point that she was trying to get us to be achievers and go there and do the, do the uh, come top of the class and so on. That, uh, that wasn't her way or my parents' way at all. Mm. They were happy that we did well, but uh, they didn't uh, really try to spoil our lives to make us live in an image that we didn't ourselves mm. have within us. But you were an incredible achiever as a schoolboy and then at university, so where did that come from? Did that, that just come from inside you? I, I think it was just uh, part of my my upbringing and my uh, my internal genetic capacity. I mean, it's not something to be proud of. We, we don't have anything to do with our own uh, genetics. But it also had a lot to do with my teachers. You know, I, I went to Strathfield North Public School. That's where I started. Where there was the local kindergarten. Then I went to the infant school, which is still there in. Uh, Corrie's Avenue and uh, Concord Road at Strathfield and uh, North Strathfield and I'm going there actually on Tuesday uh, because it's open day at Strathfield North <laughs> Public School and I'm going back and they said oh we know this is a big uh, a big request and a big inconvenience to you. I, I said it's no inconvenience whatsoever it's a joy and a pleasure and mm. it's what I, I must do and I, um, I'm happy to do it in memory of my teachers, Miss Pontifex, Mrs C, Mrs Casper, <laughs> uh, Mr Casper, uh, and all those. We have lost in Australia, sadly, we have lost the, the um, original idealism of public education, mm. that great movement that swept this con continent in, in, the in the 1880s. I mean, you look at all the public schools around the inner suburbs of Sydney. They've all got 1880, 1884, all of these schools that were built, the notion that every child on the Australian continent would have a right to excellence in public education, free, compulsory, secular. Those wonderful principles, and that's what I was brought up in, and, and so I give a, a lot of credit. That's why I'll be there at Strathfield North Public School. I don't, never quite knew why it's not called North Strathfield Public School, but <laughs> Strathfield North Public School, and then the next week I, I'm going to my high school, Fort Street High School, and mm. uh, I'll speak to the kids there. And you mention at the end of the book uh, something that happened at Fort Street and the influence it had on... Yes. One of one Simon of, Shake. Yeah, yeah. Simon yeah. Shake and yeah. his work for ACT UP. Mm. There should be more acting up. <laughs> but not necessarily in class. Right. So just looking at that period of your life though, um, you determined to become an Anglican and religion Well, I didn't really determine, you know, people can't really be blamed for their DNA or their religion generally. That's yeah. what, what your parents parents uh, give you. Is that you. where it came from? Oh, though, of course, from yes. Or? I went up the top of the street to the Methodist church for a while. Uh, my father used to say, Methodists are rich Anglicans. 
Methodists, uh, going up there meant I didn't have to cross Parramatta Road, so yeah. I could just go up the top. Uh, and so I got into my uh, head, you know, the Methodist hymns and the wonder, they're much better hymns in the Methodist church, they were. Uh, all the Wesleyan hymns, and, uh, and then later I went to the, um, the uh, St Andrew's Anglican Church. That was because that my, my parents were Anglicans, and, uh, and that was what you did in those days. And I'll never regret that. I, I, I happen to think that the Anglican Church and the Methodists, who are now the Uniting Church, uh, at least uh, sort of um, global families of churches that that are trying to work out the issue of their relationship with women, something churches and religions generally have not been all that good at, mm. uh, and also with uh, gays. And, um, and that's because the Anglican church was always a bit of a compromise between the Catholic wing and the Protestant wing within the one church. So there's always been a sort of space for different points of view and mm. so it is on women and on the position of gays in the church mm. that's how i stumbled into religion yeah but your father i think said at one point that um when he found out that you were gay he you know he was very upset by that and he spent a lot of time going to church and praying and i just wonder whether his view or his homophobia came out also was somehow connected to religion and whether or not you're just tending so. to gloss uh, over that. I know you, that's a, that's a little bit suggestive, but I don't think so. My father and mother were not, not really very, um, not very religious. Mm. They were about where I am now, you know. It's part of me, I'm very comfortable with it, I'm very happy with it. My partner, Johan, says I should get over it, but, <laughs> but you know, I, I, I'm hanging on to it and, uh, and I'm giving them a fair chance. <laughs> but um, so um, I don't think my father... My father actually stopped going to church. He went to Holy Trinity Church in Concord West and the, the, the minister of religion there started giving out tracts and making sermons uh, uh, against um, homosexual mm. people. And in the end, he and the mother of a very distinguished judge quit the church. They, they gave fair warning, they gave due process. They said, we, we don't agree with this, and uh, they just left. Mm. But I don't think, I think my father was motivated not by the church, but by what he'd seen growing up around, of all places, Taylor Square. Uh, back, we're talking about the 1930s and um, Kensington and Randwick and seeing people whispering and gossiping and denigrating and yep. he didn't want that to happen to his son. Mm. Uh, but, you know, we came a bit of a journey in Australia and, and I'm sure that, and I've known people, uh, including colleagues in the law, who've whispered and denigrated and so on, and you mention that in the book. But, uh, OK, that's their view and, and they, there would be some who would still have it. Uh, but um, it's unscientific, it's irrational, and it's got to stop. And the only way it'll stop is if uh, gay people stop conspiring in their own denigration. I mean, just imagine if every person, if every person who was left-handed 
put their hand in their pocket and refused to, to uh, show that they were left-handed and tried to write with their right hand, although they yeah. couldn't do it neatly. Some, I mean, that's what churches and, to some extent, schools made people do because mm. the left hand, sinister, was supposed to be the hand of the devil and uh, the devil wrote in the left hand. Um, so all of this rubbish, uh, and it's just irrational, and once I knew it was irrational, I never really felt guilty or, or that I was second class. I just thought, well, other people, including very distinguished people and churches and so on, they've just got it wrong. Mm. And my part of my function in life is ever so respectfully <laughs> to suggest that to them <laughs> and, and to help them over it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we've come a long, a long way, but what about the churches, though? They don't seem to have moved that far, do they? Well, I'm not so sure about that. I mean, um, uh, even uh, today I got an email from um, one, uh, a group in Melbourne who are uh, religion in the pub, or I think it's spirituality in the pub. It's a, it's a Catholic organisation. And I said, and I, they invited me to come. I've done it in Sydney, and they invited me to come in, in Melbourne, and we're negotiating dates. Uh, but I said, but what about the magisterium uh, of the Catholic Church? And they said, well, we respect the magisterium, but we're, we're not intimidated by it. Right. So, you know, I think in all the churches, you can't fight science. I mean, we've known about the differences uh, in, in uh, a small proportion of human beings uh, and that this is just a variation in nature, whatever the exact cause, it's just a variation, it's not a big deal and people know that now. I mean, the internet tells people that. And so why would they, uh, and of course young people don't believe anything exists if it isn't in the internet, so <laughs> they know about it and um, the churches are there just huddling together, trying to fight against this reality and pretending that you can go back and read out of context five little passages in, in the whole of the Bible and take them literally and ignore a hundred years of science. And it's just not going to work, I'm sorry. And, and, and they've got to come to terms with this and find a way to accommodate it. And they will. Of course they will. Mm. They, they look at how when Darwin came along and the notion that the world was uh, created on the 5th of October, uh, 6,200 years earlier, uh, was exploded. And they fought that tooth and nail for, for decades. But ultimately, they came to an accommodation and said, well, uh, that was a metaphor and... Um, <laughs> That is a poetry, uh, and we must understand that uh, that doesn't, that's not inconsistent with the notion that there is a God who gave the spark that created the billions of galaxies and so on, and that's something on which people can have views. But uh, only in the United States, I think, do people believe that the world was created on October 6,000 years ago, and they're taught that in some schools yeah. in the United States. Yeah. We've got to make sure that doesn't happen here. <laughs> um, we're racing through, but I just wanted to ask you a bit about when you went to university and you had such a stellar um, career there. I would as say semi-stellar. As a, as a um, student politician. Oh, as a student. Well, yeah. well that was stellar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> I was the king of the committees. Right. But all of this was just a sort of an excuse to avoid my sexual reality and my, my full life. And you, you were finding something else to do. And yeah, I certainly, but I had to find a lot to do to keep my, <laughs> my, my mind off the subject. Yeah. But nevertheless, you were obviously an excellent politician as a student, very successful. And I think your brother David said to me that he thought, or the whole family thought, that one day you were going to be Prime Minister. I think he said to me, um, you'd be Prime Minister and Gareth Evans would be your Foreign Secretary. It didn't work out that way. No, it didn't, though he did become the Foreign Minister and yeah. a very, very distinguished Foreign Minister yeah. too. But that was to do with decisions you made in your life as well. Can you tell us a bit about that? Why you didn't take that course into politics? Well, I, I was a pretty good uh, student politician and, of course, uh, Tony Abbott was one of my successes as president of the SRC and uh, that's where people honed and refined their skills at glad-handing and smiling for the cameras and doing all the things that you have to do. Um, but you know, I, I realised that if I were to go into politics, we're talking here of the 1960s and 70s, mm. I would have to be as Edward Heath, the Prime Minister of Britain, was rumoured to be, you know, a gay man who just had no life. You had to be untouchable and you had to have no life. And um, quite um, early uh, on I came to the view that that was just a a bridge too far. I, I wasn't willing to do that. I wasn't willing to pretend and go through that as people did. I mean, mm. I've known uh, politicians who were gay and who sort of pretended um, and uh, that just wasn't me. So I, I couldn't do that, wouldn't do it. And so I then had to sink my sorrows that I would never be the, the Prime Minister of Australia. What a blessed job that is. <laughs> so easy. Sailing through life with universal love and affection of everybody. Uh, I had to give that away and just settle for being a Justice of the High Court of Australia. <laughs> Do you do you think, um, looking back now, though, that that was something you would have done if things had been different? Or what, did you actually decide, no, I'm not really interested well, in that Well, if I'd been a straight... I've often thought, you know, what would your life have been if you'd been straight, you'd had a wife, you'd had children, you'd had different things? It's pretty hard to imagine it all because mm. it really isn't something that ever was going to be and therefore uh, I don't lie there at night tossing and turning, wondering about that. But um, I probably would have tried to, to go into... I would have gone to all those prawn and bar barbecue nights and I would have put up with the whole catastrophe and uh, who knows? We all know that luck plays a huge part in life generally and in political life in particular. But um, I'm not complaining. Uh, I, I think I've had a very fortunate life and uh, I... I hope that I've made a, a bit of a contribution and it's going on and it's mm. still continuing. Mm. And now, increasingly, it's uh, since my High Court period is over, it's, it's really on the world stage. I went to Nigeria four weeks ago to speak at their invitation to the judges of the Supreme Court and they knew I would be speaking about sexuality and I spoke about sexuality mm. and 
they listened most thoughtfully and carefully and I think that was a good thing because mm. if ever they are confronted with cases, in the back of their mind will be the memory of, of somebody who they have respected and asked. You never know how these things work out in the, in the big picture. Similarly, uh, a, a week ago, or a week and a bit ago, I was in Jamaica speaking to the judiciary there and speaking to the health minister and the health and the, the law minister about the terrible problem of homophobia and the very high levels of HIV and the bashings and the murders in that sunny country. So um, I didn't come to be uh, Prime Minister. That might have been a, a blessed relief. Uh, I've, I've made my contribution in, in different ways and, yeah. and uh, I think uh, that's, that's as it was meant to be and that's, I'm quite happy with that. Mm. I'm not going to ask you, you know, what's your best judgment or... Oh, no. <laughs> They're all wonderful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I know that you did say to me that you felt that the work you did in Cambodia was extremely important. Can you just talk a little bit about that and why, why well, you picked that uh, out? Cambodia was, of course, uh, outside the judgment court, court milieu, uh, Gareth Evans, uh, whom I'd worked with in the Law Reform Commission, as well as knowing when he was president of the Melbourne SRC, and I was president, uh, just had been president of the Sydney SRC, uh, he played a very uh, instrumental role in the peace settlement in Cambodia that provided for the Paris peace accords that led to the election that got rid of the Khmer Rouge and introduced the democratically elected legislature. And one of the terms that he, he and the others put into the Paris Peace Accords was that there would be a special representative of the Secretary General of the United Nations for Human Rights in Cambodia. And they offered it to a very distinguished African judge, a judge of the World Court, but he didn't take it. And then the, the offer came to me. Uh, it was went to the African judge, not only for his distinction, but because he was a Francophone and Cambodia had been in the French language mm. field. But anyway, when I got there, because my background had involved my work in the World Health Organization and other bodies on HIV, Cambodia had been la rather locked off and it had a rather low HIV level, but it started to rise very rapidly. So I then said, well, look, uh, HIV and getting very sick with a deadly disease is an affront to human rights, and this is a very important human rights issue. Well, the problems I had with that, you know, the government said, uh, this is not a human rights matter, you're intruding into a matter outside your mandate, you shouldn't be doing this. We all know that the reason HIV is rising in Cambodia is because of all the uh, prostitutes from Vietnam. Uh, don't ever think that racism is the prerogative only of Caucasian people. Racism and attitudes of dislike of other countries is everywhere. And I said, no, no, this is a human rights issue, the right to life, the right to the best available health care. I knew all Eleanor Roosevelt's human rights, so mm. I just told them this and insisted and persisted and ultimately gathered support within Cambodia, such of the doctors that were left, such of the civil society, uh, and that became a very important part of the strategy of the UN family in Cambodia 
And the net result of that um, was that the graph of infections, which was going up very rapidly, began to plateau. And it has basically plateaued. Mm. Uh, I'm not saying that was because of my effort, but I, I'm saying it was because of the UN effort, which I was protecting and advancing. And uh, in the big picture, my judgments in the High Court of Australia, my work in civil society and so on, have all been important. But uh, that actually, I think, uh, helped to save lives. And that's a, a precious thing. Human rights are very important. and none more than the right to life and to be helped with health care when you're very sick, mm. as people are if they have HIV. That was... You finished that job for UN and went to the High Court, basically, didn't you? I went... I was appointed to the High Court and then I had to surrender the, the position. Right. And you were talking before about... Um, not being the Chief Justice of the High Court, but you went well, from... Well, this is something that obviously worries you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm just, I'm just I giving you... I wasn't talking about it. I was just saying, <laughs> you, you've got me wrong there. You know, I'm not Richard III. I'm not Laurence Olivier <laughs> sitting there. Uh, now is the winter of our discontent. <laughs> that, that was not really a big deal for me. I, if I'd been Chief Justice, I couldn't have done the uh, international and other mm. activities, so... Um, um, but you'd been the president of the Court of Appeal. You missed out on a few of my faults, but you had one that isn't really a well, fault. Well, being the president of the Court of Appeal, you then go to the High Court where you are just one of the seven. You're not... You're not I as would you take out the, the word just. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not wishing to dwell on this, but... <laughs> It was a different scenario, wasn't it? I mean, you talked about the Court of Appeal being a very happy time in your life, whereas the High Court wasn't so happy, was it? The, the, uh, the law is a very hierarchical profession. I'm, I'm sure it must be the same in the military and in the church. Mm. Some bodies are just used to being sort of run uh, hierarchically. A and when I was in the Law Reform Commission, I was the chairman. When I was in the Court of Appeal, I was the President. When I went to the High Court, uh, it wasn't helped in the first week by an editorial in the Sydney Morning Herald which was headed, The Kirby Court. Uh, my colleagues there, I think, were offended by that and uh, thought uh, that they would make sure that I didn't get too big for my boots. Um, so, um, yes, it's true that the, the period in the High Court was not as happy or, or, I think, as achieving as the mm. earlier periods uh, in those other two bodies. But just the same, you know, people, people have suggested, oh, well, you weren't a good enough po judicial politician. You didn't do the deals and negotiate. Uh, and I, I do understand that view, that that is the role of a judge. But, you know, I was just one of those very naive people that believed the propaganda that I'd been taught at law school and believed it sincerely, that the mm. role of judges is not to do deals. This is not Tammany Hall. Uh, like it or not, in a country of uncorrupted, uh, independent judges, you get what the judge truly believes. Mm. And that's what I gave. And if that was a major part of a majority or a majority opinion, fine. Uh, if it wasn't, fine. 
Mm. That's how it works. Mm. And I think myself that that's what Australians expect their judges to do, to give their truthful, honest answer to a problem as they see it. And of course, maybe I saw problems in a slightly different way because of my upbringing. I was generally the only justice of the High Court whose education was entirely in public schools, which is itself a curious thing. Um, I'm going to be watching the two appointments that are coming in the next couple of months to see if, if they're products, as I was, or proudly of public education. Mm. Because, you know, that's where you meet everybody. Mm. And um, uh, so I think these are, this, is, this was the, the difference uh, in, in that period of my life. Uh, it was a wonderful experience. Uh, I am very respectful of my colleagues who served with me. Uh, they did it their way, according to their values and understanding of the law. I did it my way, according mm. to my values and understanding of the law, and that's how our system works. Mm. I know that people will want to ask questions, but the one other thing I wanted to ask you about, I don't want to go over the Heffernan affair at all, but I interviewed um, Don Dunstan many years ago, and he said to me that he believed that there was a deliberate policy out there by the media barons of the media to denigrate people in public life. Didn't matter whether in the Labor Party or the, La or the Liberal Party, in all areas of public life, judges, politicians, so that people felt they couldn't trust them and therefore that all the power would be with the moneyed people, with the, with the press and with the press barons and so on. Do you think that that is true? Do you think that has transpired? Do you think the Heffernan thing might have been an example of something like that? Well, I noticed in your book that you, you, you uh, quote uh, a senator uh, who uh, is named as saying that um, he knew Senator Heffernan quite well. He knew his style. He rarely made speeches within the chamber. Uh, and he knew the way he spoke and that that speech of his was not his speech. I, I had never thought of that until I read that in your book. Uh, and uh, it may or may not be right, I, I don't know, but he said it was the style and the, and the tightness of it was um, mm. showed that it had been drafted. I think he said that Heffernan was a bumbler. He didn't criticise well, him Well, I for didn't that, like but... to repeat. Uh, <laughs> uh, I'm a, perhaps a little more aware of the law of defamation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um, uh, so... Uh, as to the thesis, th that is increasingly being said in academic literature that, that we're, we're suffering a crisis of democracy because of the constant denigration of our leaders. I don't care if they're Liberal or Labor, and I've known good and, and not so good people on both sides of politics in, in my life uh, and in other parties as well. Uh, I, I think just constantly denigrating uh, our public officials uh, in the bureaucracy, in the judiciary and in the, uh, in the parliament and in the executive and is really not in our interest, but it, it's the way media operates. And I think it's partly bound up with the technology. The technology is very visual and it's very immediate and it's 24 hours, news cycles and everything has to be done and there has to be a headline uh, this day and there has to be a theme this week and it's 
fixed often by poles and, and so on. And we're living from moment to moment and we're not looking down the, the years. And mm. uh, I, I, I think, uh, I'm not saying this is a big conspiracy theory and that this was all a big dark plot, but um, I, I do think we've got to get back to that wonderful moment in Australian history in 1950 and 51 when the leader of a national political party looked at the, the attempt to ban the Communist Party and with the support of some churches, not all, uh, stood up and said, this is not a good direction. And that in the face of 80% opinion polls saying the people strongly support this endeavour and as your book brings out, that was a personal crisis for our family because my grandmother had remarried the national treasurer of the Communist Party. Mm. And I'm glad his photo appears in your book because <laughs> he, he, was a, uh, he may have been misguided and I think at the end he perhaps came to the view that he had been. Mm. But he was a very idealistic man and a very brave soldier at Gallipoli and he was just searching for a better world. Uh, and the attempt to ban them was a very bad decision, mm. as John Howard later said in China, that it had been a big mistake. But it took a politician and the political process and the High Court of Australia and the people of this nation in a referendum mm. to say, no, go no further. That was a wonderful moment yeah. in Australia's history. It also shows you that you can't believe opinion polls, doesn't it? <laughs> well, Six-week campaign turned around from 80% to... to well, you could, maybe you can uh, believe opinion polls, but then it's the role of our democratic politicians to have values and principles mm. and to seek to persuade their fellow citizens uh, of the wisdom of the view that they wish to propound as the direction for this country. We should be a very confident... We're a prosperous country. We've become a much more interesting country in my lifetime. We've still got a journey to go, but we're doing... Uh, we're not doing as well as we could be doing, in my humble opinion. You're, you're making a political life more and more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe we'll leave it there and we'll see if people want to ask some questions. Thank you. Thank you very much to Daryl and to Michael for their wonderful conversation. We've now got some time for questions from you, about 10 minutes, just a bit more than that perhaps. We have two microphones down here, right um, at the bottom of the aisles, if you'd like to come down and ask a question so that everybody can hear it. Um, ever since uh, I heard Neil Gaiman say this in an event that he did at the Wheeler Centre, we think of a question as something that has a question mark at the end of it. And uh, our, our rule of thumb is that it can be answered and is probably not more than one or two sentences long. Um, so if you can bear that in mind, do uh, come and, and join us at those microphones. Um, in the meanwhile, to kick it off, I might just ask Michael, you mentioned uh, uh, before when we were talking about it that you thought it was you had encouraged uh, Daryl to um, criticise you in the book. Um, and to, to, to sort of to make sure that there was some that, that it wasn't all a story of you know. Uh... He got a bit carried away. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
why, why did you think it was important for the book to include, uh, include some of those kinds of things? Because every, everybody has flaws. I, in fact, sent him an email with 20 flaws <laughs> on, on my part. And I'm thinking of doing a book review of the book, <laughs> which will, uh, which will uh, mention the 20 flaws that could have been added, but what wouldn't have included not becoming Chief Justice. <laughs> I don't wish to harp on that. <laughs> no, I think we're I think we're pretty clear. <laughs> Let's go to this gentleman here. Michael, um, first of all, I'd like to say thank you for your wonderful speech at the 2002 Gay Games. My partner and I were sitting in front there, listening to it, and we're in, in awe. Um, my question would be: um, Do you have any wisdom for us in getting both sides of our parliament, or uh, uh, sorry? both sides of Parliament to perhaps get the laws changed to perhaps you to a, a, a marry Johan and myself to marry my partner? Well, uh, <clears throat> getting both sides of Parliament to change, if you mean getting everybody in Parliament to change to support marriage equality, that's just not going to happen. That's the sort of pie in the sky because there are people who have very sincere views that that it's not appropriate or that it may be damaging and it may be a bad uh, development and that it will cause um, straight couples to philander in ways that they wouldn't have done if, if those, those naughty gays had been <laughs> kept out of marriage. So um, uh, there are going to be people who, who oppose it. Uh, and there are going to be gay people who, who, who are not interested in it. I have to say to you that my partner Jan and I, having been together for 43 years over such a long time through good and bad times, it wasn't really a very big thing for us. But now we've come round to the view that if, if uh, the parliament enacts it, we will get married. Uh, because we've, we're sort of, we've seen so much effort and so many struggles and, and nobody's suggesting this should be compulsory. But how can it be done? <laughs> How can it be done? Well, well, it probably can't be done except by a conscience vote of the whole parliament. Uh, we, we've done that in many matters of sensitivity in the past, including, I think, when the Family Law Act was, uh, was enacted, there were people on the Labor side who opposed it, people on the uh, coalition side who, who favoured it, and then the consensus emerged. Um, but uh, at the moment, as you know, Tony Abbott, um, uh, who apparently under the rules of the coalition parties has the final say in this, won't allow the members of the coalition to have a, a free vote and therefore uh, at that position there is no way, as it seems to me, that it can go through Parliament. And if you ask, well, how, how can that be changed? Well, you send an email to Tony Abbott. We do. Uh, and maybe that will change it. Some we people do. think there, there may be votes, votes uh, in, or there, there may be political reasons for opposing this, but um, if that's so, well, that's how politics works out. But can there be any doubt that in a few years there will be marriage equality in this country? There's no doubt at all that that will come. Uh, it is there in Scandinavia, it's there in the Netherlands and Belgium, it's there in Catholic Spain and Argentina, uh, and increasing numbers. Now Mr Hollande, the new French president, said it's going to be there in France. Mr Cameron says he supports it, not despite the fact that he's a conservative, but because he's a conservative. So 
I'm afraid I have to say, break the, the harsh reality, it is coming and it will come to Australia, but we're going to have to muddle away for a while yet, I suspect. Thank you. Hi, Michael. It's an honour here. Um, uh, my question is, well, actually, I came to Australia when I was 15 and I'm 35. I've got a law degree and studying Master of Laws and I've always wanted to be a great lawyer. Um, so what would your recommendations be? <laughs> what was the question? She's always wanted to be a great lawyer, so what is your recommendation of how she achieves that? Slave away and ruin your life. <laughs> we'll be ready to work seven days a week, uh, 16 hours a day, have a partner who'll put up with that, uh, be lucky, uh, but also, never lose your respect for other people, you know, don't think you're a, a, a great uh, figure, that these are people with a problem who are trusting you to help solve the problem and show them respect and, and give them their dignity. I always used to see barristers joking in front of clients and they would do that in part as a stress mechanism to let off steam and and to make themselves feel better for the stresses of going in and fighting a case and cross-examining and so on. Uh, but it wasn't a good look because to litigants it's, it's not a uh, funny business. And I would always tell young, young lawyers, uh, never forget that when they, they go home after a day's encounter with you, forever you will be Mr Kirby, my lawyer. And the impression you make on them and the seriousness with which you take their, their problem and the devotion you show to them will be something that will be talked about in their families forever. I mean, it's a, it's a rather awesome thing to think of. So all I can suggest to you is slave away, work hard, get good grades, uh, have some fun, uh, and um, always treat your clients and the rest of the community with, with respect. Thank you very much. Hi, um, my name's Dahlia. I was just wondering why after 30 years of being with your partner did you then decide to, you know, let the public know about your sexuality and why did it, why, do you, why did you decide it took, you know, 30 years? Well, it, it isn't quite as bleak as you suggest. <laughs> Because when HIV came along in the 1980s, um, uh, we started to go to funerals and we, a lot of our very close and dear friends uh, died. I was thinking of one this morning as I came into work at five o'clock this morning uh, down William Street and we, we had a, a couple who lived in, uh, I think it was Crown Street and I was thinking of, of them. They both died of AIDS. And so when that started to happen, we started to get involved in HIV AIDS. My partner became an Ankali, which is a, a friend who will go and help people. Uh, and to, that, to him in that respect, I was a handbag. I would go along and, uh, and see it. And I became involved in national and international activities. And that was sort of code language for who we were and what we were. And everyone knew about it. When I was appointed, Mr. 
Mr Keating, who was the Prime Minister at the time, and that's a bit of a story because that was an unusual thing for him to do, to appoint somebody who was involved in the Australians for constitutional monarchy to be uh, a Justice of the High Court. That showed Keating really took a, a big picture view of things. Anyway, when he did so, he said to one of his staffers, uh, well there, Bill, that's one for you, because Bill was gay. And Bill said to him, Prime Minister, have I got news for you? <laughs> uh, so, um, you know, I think everyone knew, but that was the way it was in those days. And fundamentally, that was what my father wanted me to continue to do. You know, be who you are, but keep it very, very quiet and be very, very silent and be very, very ashamed. And increasingly, it, that's why I don't like the expression, come out of the closet. It, it assumes it's a minute, a moment, mm. but it isn't. It's a phase and people do it over time and that's what we did, over time. But boy, if I had been uh, um, more open about my sexuality, there's no way back in 1975 I would have been appointed to the uh, Arbitration Commission. No way I would have been appointed to the um, Law Reform Commission. No way I would have been appointed to the Court of Appeal. I was playing by the rules imposed on me by society. And that's over. But there are still gay people and gay judges who are very silent about it because they're afraid that, that uh, it will be misused as to some extent it was in my case. But just the same, we're glad we, we came out of that closet. It's a very, <laughs> a very dark... It's a horrible, dank, nasty little place. And there should be no one in closets. Everybody should. If everybody came out, if every gay person that we know, Johan and I, in this country, suddenly stood up and said, this is us, get over it. <laughs> you know, the whole shabby, miserable charade would be all over in a moment. But that won't happen. Over here, I'm Hi, it's an honor. My name is Evan. Uh, I'm an attorney from the United States and I'm now a student of Australia law, but I, I wanted to know your take on what your opinion was on the U.S. Supreme Court and its jurisprudence over the last 12 years if we, as we've seen it shift being both conservative as well as an activist court in gay rights as well as in handgun control. Well, look, you know, I know most of those, those guys and gals, uh, and, and, you know, I'm not going to ruin my relationship with them. <laughs> we it's live worth in, a shot. <laughs> we, we live in an international age. You're likely to go out of this hall and get onto your blog and send messages, <laughs> and they're that. going to end up on the desk of the justices, my friend, friends in the, high, in the Supreme Court of the United States, and that would not be a good look. <laughs> But, you know, when I was in my uh, years in the High Court, I used to thirst for a court uh, where it was 4-3, which is typically, uh, where it was 5-4, as it typically is in the Supreme Court of the United States. I mean, at least then you got a bit of a chance. But uh, I, didn't, I didn't get my appointment to the High Court in the Mason Court during the time of Chief Justice Mason. If that had happened, my life would have been 
in a way much more interesting and fulfilling on the High Court because it would have been much more evenly balanced. But after the Wick case, which followed the Marbo case, Mr Tim Fisher, Deputy Prime Minister, said in this country, we will appoint capital C Conservatives. And that is what happened. And that is not a criticism. That is exactly how the Constitution works in this country. The executive government appoints, uh, that's it. Uh, and, um, and so um, that was the position in my time on the High Court. It's not the case in the Supreme Court of the United States. Still on a knife's edge. But it does make the, the election of the next President of the United States extremely important. Just as the choices that are made in the next few months will be extremely important for the High Court of Australia for decades, decades ahead. I hope that's realised in the places where such decisions are made. Thank you. And uh, for our final question over here. Good afternoon. Ian's my name. I'm here with my 16-year-old son and I'm surprised that there are a lot of young people here today. You were very active as a young man. What advice could you give them? Well, uh, I, th I think I must go into the business of advising young people and, uh, and uh, I'm not sure that I, I'm the right person. Anybody who at the age of eight is drafting a will. <laughs> it's all revealed in, in Daryl's book uh, and it's even quoted from including the miserable provision I had at the end, and to my beloved mother, uh, I, I left my father my children's encyclopedias, <laughs> which at the age of eight is a bit, it's like leaving a Rolls Royce, but I left my mother my love because anything else would be, uh, would be inadequate. Uh, and, and really, uh, so anybody who is so weird, my father, my father, when he received it, said to me, uh, 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 can you please let us into the, the secret? When are you planning to die? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm not sure that anybody so odd is the right person to be. But the main advice is to, uh, is to love your parents and love your siblings, uh, to love your teachers, whether they're in public or private schools, they're all teachers, they're all wonderful, influential people who you'll never forget in your life. And also to, to seek uh, to do your very best with your abilities uh, and to search for spiritual things. My partner doesn't agree with that, that part, so I put a footnote. <laughs> this is subject to contrary views. <laughs> but... Um, the main thing is to be himself uh, or herself and uh, to not go through that period in my life that I went through. Straight or gay, people should stand up, be themselves, get on with it, and those who have a problem with that should just have a lie down and a rest and, and, and get over it. And basically, I think that's what we're doing in Australia. But boy, we've still got a way to go with some, in some political circles and some church circles. And really, they've got to be given a little bit of help. But the younger generation of the hope, they wonder what all that weird business was over. And, and what was weird was not just somebody writing a will at the age of eight. It was forcing somebody to be untruthful and secretive in their relationship with those who they 
loved most. And that is something I resent looking back on it. And I hope it, does, it doesn't happen in families in Australia today or anywhere else. Before we give our final thanks uh, to Michael and to Daryl for this afternoon, I noticed a certain response from you to Michael's comments about public education. And I just want to let you know that we have a rather interesting event in the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, which will be a hypothetical entitled Abolish Private Schools. Um, and it's really about having a conversation about what kind of education system we really want and whether dot, 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 taking that step might lead us towards it. But um, given your response, I thought that was worth mentioning to you. The other thing is that last year at the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, Michael came and gave a talk for us. And he had too many dangerous ideas to corral into a single topic. We tr I tried to tempt him with various aspects of public life and private life or for eating animals. No, he had too many. And he said, why don't I talk about them all? So we had a session, how many dangerous ideas can one person have? <laughs> And it was such a wonderful session. Obviously, um, you know, do, Michael um, was, is a perfect person to do that. But we liked the idea of it so much that we have Jermaine Greer <laughs> telling us how many dangerous ideas she can have. So um, that was just another one I wanted to mention. Um, do come and see us in between now and then with Richard Holloway, Simon Callow, or John Ralston Saul. Um, thank you very much to our wonderful speakers, to Daryl for writing the book to Michael for coming along and talking about it. Now, we've had AJ Brown's wonderful legal biography, Paradoxes and Principles. We've had Michael's own a private life. We now have, now I've completely forgotten which order they're supposed to come in. Life, love, law, law, love, life. Um, Daryl's uh, uh, wonderful biography. So I'm wondering what will be the next one, the secret sporting life of Michael Kirby. <laughs> That's you never sad. know, you never know. <laughs> So stay tuned in confidence that we'll bring it to you. But in the meanwhile, Daryl and Michael will be out in the foyer signing copies of the book. So please join me in thanking them.